As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. More than the F word, it's the C word that scares so many of us, especially women who have a history of cancer in their family. As mothers, we try to be hyper-aware of the carcinogens all around us in the environment and our nutrition, and we try to steer clear of them to protect our kids. But when you're predisposed, it's a situation that often feels helpless because there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. Cancer affects the world's population in such an invasive way. We all know at least one person who is currently fighting cancer is a survivor or has passed away. Today's episode is about the measures we can take to prevent ourselves from becoming a statistic, how to screen for breast cancer, and how to deal with it if you happen to be diagnosed or have a friend or family member who is. Today on the show, I have with me Baral Somani. Baral is a healthcare executive and cancer survivor turned inspirational speaker, championing health, resilience, and a positive mindset. As the founder and CEO of Silver Linings, Barlow combines her experiences as a young working mother diagnosed with breast cancer in her early 30s, a caregiver who transformed her parents' lives with her patient advocacy, and a businesswoman with 15 plus years of experience in management consulting and executive roles in consumer technology and healthcare companies. Carl's mission is to help improve the state of healthcare by sharing her experiences and inspiring others to live a healthy, thankful, and fulfilling life. She's shared her personal story through her cancer blog that's been read in 80 countries, films on survivorship and mindset, TV and radio segments, podcast interviews like this one, and public speaking engagements. Prior to becoming a professional speaker, Barl was head of global B2B and B2B2C marketing at Color Genomics, where she built and led the team responsible for the entire sales and consumer success marketing funnel for Color's enterprise and clinical channels. Before that, as VP of Growth for Weddington Way, Paro led the vertical integration and retail growth strategies that led to the company's acquisition by Gap Inc. As a management consultant at Bain & Company, Paro led teams advising Fortune 500 companies and private equity firms and helped launch Bain's first consulting office in India. Paral currently serves on the advisory board for Stanford's Health Communication Initiative and Early Stage Startups. Barl holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and a minor in Economics from MIT and an MBA from Harvard Business School. So Parl and I are connected through our mutual friend, Pyle Kadakia Puji. And as many of you know, Pyle is the founder of ClassPass, um, which, you know, this year hit a milestone. It's the first female-led startup to hit unicorn status in 2020. And she's also, um, as we, you know, know her best, the creative director of Saw Dance Company. And Pyle and I are both members and dancers. And I love that Pyle and I met at um, Pyle's wedding and 
And, you know, we just kind of dove into a rehearsal and bonded over dance. Uh, Parl, I am so, so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your childhood and what it was like um, growing up in an Indian family. Sure. Uh, you know, my childhood was great. And in, in some ways, like many classic immigrant families, I was born in India, in Rajasthan, and moved to the U.S. when I was very young, uh, just under three years old. And we moved to Portland, Oregon. And I spent my first 14 years there, you know, seeing my parents work very hard. My dad had his main day job, but both my mom and dad had multiple entrepreneurial side hustles throughout <laughs> the years. I saw their work ethic, and that was definitely something instilled in myself and my sister through that process as well. Um, but I also remember many carefree days just, you know, playing in the apartment complex and playing kickball and riding my bike and um, in some ways much more carefree than, you know, our children are allowed to be uh, in this day and age. But then I moved to the south of Seattle area uh, where I went to high school. Then I moved to the East Coast for college. Very cool. Um, and now, you know, I want to kind of do a deep dive into today's show topic. Um, it's just, it's surprising that we have not found a cure to all the various cancers that exist today. But tell us how it began for you. Sure. So uh, cancer itself has actually had a presence in my life since childhood. Uh, you know, I was very young when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in her early 30s. My own personal cancer journey began back in 2012. I was 29 years old and I was just at a OBGYN appointment talking about my family history and mentioned my mom's early onset breast cancer and was fortunate to have an OBGYN who recommended that I get genetic testing done to find out if I'm at elevated risk. And in mm. some ways, I had always just assumed that I was at an elevated risk given my mom's history, Sure, but felt that getting the genetic testing done would be powerful because if it did confirm that I carry a genetic risk as well, then I would qualify for mammograms and MRIs at an earlier age than I otherwise would have uh, and would you know, increase my chances of being able to either prevent something or catch something at a more treatable stage than I otherwise um, might have. And so it was almost a nonchalant decision at the time uh, to agree to the genetic testing. It was a simple cheek swab. You know, I didn't really go through any counseling um, or understanding understand what the implications might be. When you fast forward a few weeks later, I was in a car uh, on the way to the airport for a friend's wedding when I got the unexpected call from the doctor saying that, I'm sorry to say, you carry a mutation in the BRCA1 gene. Okay. And my lifetime risk of developing breast cancer was over 80% mm. compared to the average woman's lifetime risk of about 10 to 12%. Oh my and goodness. So, you know, understanding those numbers uh, were really eye-opening in terms of not just going through the screening, the mammograms and MRIs, but also just awakening in me my own awareness of changes in my body and the importance of recognizing uh, when things might be different. Mm -hmm. So two years after that, I was 31 years old and I was actually 38 weeks pregnant with my second daughter. Mm -hmm. And I was actually just at an 
an ultrasound appointment and happened to be reclining in the exam chair. And I felt a, an itch on my ch- in my chest. And when I went to you know stretch it, I actually felt a lump. And I had actually Googled <laughs> a couple years prior what a breast cancer lump feels like. And mm-hmm. it, it had been described as a you know hard pea-sized mass. Immediately went to my OBGYN's office after the ultrasound was completed at the hospital and uh, requested a physical exam. And she, you know, amongst other doctors in this process, had actually thought that there was nothing to worry about because I was only 31 years old, I was quite young, and I was pregnant. And so lumpiness is common and the likelihood of it being a clogged milk duct is also very high. Uh, But it was because of the genetic testing that I had done, you know, I advocated for, you know, further testing. And and that's why they agreed that I should get an ultrasound and biopsy done. Well, two days later, my water broke uh, two weeks early. And so I never actually made it to the appointment for the ultrasound and, and biopsy that had been made. Mm. Um, and my I went through a C-section and she had complications after birth and was in the NICU. And so there were just a number of reasons that would have made it very easy to dismiss the lump and just prioritize you know, the present with my daughter at the time. Um, And yet, because of the genetic test results, we had it top of mind that this is important to get checked out. And so we actually had my husband wheel me from the NICU to the neighboring breast clinic to have an ultrasound and biopsy done. And it was on my newborn's one week birthday that we got the call saying the lump is malignant after all. And I had stage two triple negative. How, How did you react? to that moment. I mean, so while we were still at the hospital, while my daughter was still in the NICU and I had gone in for this biopsy, we had a number of reasons to think that there was nothing to worry about because even the breast surgeon doing the biopsy said that the lump felt soft and it's likely a clogged milk duct. And we were so focused on the complications that my daughter was going through that we, we really just did believe that there was nothing to worry about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, she was cleared of, uh, you know, anything major being wrong and we were able to be discharged five days after her birth. And so we were actually back home and had been back home for two days uh, before I got the call from the doctor. When she first told me that the lump is malignant after all, and that I do in fact have breast cancer, I actually initially had just gone into warrior mode. It was almost a matter of fact conversation of, okay, so what are we dealing with? What do I need to do? You know, what is the plan? And she talked about chemotherapy and surgery and the possibility of radiation down the road. But it was only when she said, and obviously this means that you will need to stop breastfeeding. Mm. Strangely, that was actually the moment when I started tearing up because nursing had been very difficult for me with my first daughter. Um, and and yet I was I had ultimately been able to um, do it. And I nursed her for 13 months. And it was very important to, to me to do that for Mira as well. And so even after the C-section in the NICU, I was really diligent about making my way to the NICU and nursing her, you know, as needed. Uh, you know, th- that was really when I started tearing up. And my mom is also standing there knowing I'm speaking to the surgeon and I mouthed to her that it's cancer. And after I finished the call with the doctor is when I just dropped my head into my hands and started bawling. Yeah. 
kind of walk us through what the process after the screenings entails? It was actually one month between me getting my diagnosis and actually starting treatment, which felt like the longest month of my life, but ended up being very important to go through that process of getting multiple multiple opinions and really understanding what it is that we're facing and what the you know best next steps would be. I think there's a instinctive behavior to want to just jump into surgery and get this thing out. Uh, but I would was advised that in these type of situations, you know, months and years matter, but days and weeks do not. And so take the time to assess the situation. And so we really jumped right into action, uh, which involved you know, getting more scans done. So additional MRIs, additional biopsies, assessing whether it had spread into the lymph nodes or not. And you, know, you can just imagine I'm basically recovering from a C-section, so only partially being able to comfortably walk, you know, wearing frozen cabbage leaves in my bra <laughs> to try right. to wean off um, while going into an MRI appointment where I can barely even climb onto the MRI table uh, because my abdominal muscles don't yet work well after the C-section. And so there's just a lot of, uh, of moving pieces around that time. And one of the things that we found was very important was trying to find a care team that was most specialized in what it is that we were dealing with. And so what that means is not just a breast cancer oncologist or a breast cancer surgeon, but who has specific experience in my type of breast cancer, which is triple negative breast cancer and highly aggressive, and who has experience working with people with BRCA1 mutations, because the optimal treatment plan for them and the surgical recommendations for them differ from that of someone with average risk who just happened to develop breast cancer. Mm. And we had gotten opinions from kind of more private hospitals that tend to recommend the more standard uh, treatment of care, where and also got opinions from the more academic research institutions like UCSF and Stanford that are more cutting edge in terms of research and aware of more progressive treatment options. And we eventually landed on pursuing my care at Stanford and uh, went with doing chemotherapy first and surgery afterwards, uh, because that would allow us to actually monitor how the tumor was responding to the chemotherapy, which mm-hmm. one allows us to shift chemotherapy you know, drugs and, and, and approach if we see that the tumor is not responding fast enough or, or actually not responding at all. Whereas if it is responding, then we actually have have a more informed sense of prognosis because we have a a measurable way of knowing that the chemotherapy was actually effective. Whereas lots of people do surgery first just to get the tumor out and then do chemotherapy, but then are essentially sitting fingers crossed for the rest of their life, just hoping they don't get a recurrence because they don't actually have any indicator of whether the chemotherapy was effective for them or not. Oh, wow. So in my case, I was fortunate to have a complete response, which means that the tumor 
disappeared entirely from my first line of chemotherapy. Uh, I had 10 rounds. And so the thought there is then that my prognosis is very strong because if a dense tumor was not able to withstand the toxicity of the chemotherapy, then the chance of a free floating cancer cell is likely to not have survived as well. Right, right. Okay. Um, And what was chemo like? I mean, was it absolutely debilitating? Like what were the sensations that you felt because of it? So I think chemotherapy drugs and the ability to manage the side effects of them have evolved a lot in, in recent years and over the decades, you know, from when my mom went through it. The decision of even figuring out which chemotherapy drugs to undergo actually was more of an art than a science than I had expected. And there was an option of chemotherapy drugs that would have been highly toxic, that they're actually considered the standard of care, but they're so toxic that they also carry a lot of long-term side effects to them. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite end, you know, there was a recommendation from Stanford to actually consider even more progressive set of drugs that thought to be effective, but, you know, so not toxic that my hair wouldn't have even fallen out. So even determining which drugs to take, I implemented my own life decision-making framework, which I call the path of least regret. If I think years from now, looking back, which option will I have the least regret with that gives me peace of mind that I made the best choice with the information that I had at that time. And that involved actually coming up with a chemotherapy treatment that was a combination of the standard uh, one drug, which was the more standard care. So it is toxic enough that my hair would in fact fall out. Um, But combining that with one of the more recent drugs that has been known to be very effective in my particular type of cancer. So those chemotherapy drugs have minimal longer term side effects to them, but they are toxic enough that, you know, my hair did fall out. And I did go through the process of what initially started as, you know, grieving um, my hair loss, but then I turned into more of a moment of empowerment by choosing to shave my head off uh, before all of it fell out. So it felt like a decision I was making for myself rather than just one more thing that was happening to me. That's amazing. And as far as the side effects go, you know, there is, of course, um, some nausea, but that's actually very well managed with other medications that doctors provide uh, to patients now. So I actually did not throw up even once uh, during my treatment. Um, The biggest side effect um, from a lifestyle perspective was really just the fatigue. Uh, You know, there were days where I felt like I had been hit by a truck and just like could not get my body out of bed. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas there were other days where I felt perfectly fine and, you know, what was going on walks or doing things around the house. And, you know, I still had two children (laughs) um, at Mm -hmm. home at the time that I I wanted to spend as much time with as I could. And so, you know, I definitely tried to stay active throughout my treatment. But, uh, you know, having the support of my parents staying with us and helping care for me and uh, my husband and the girls at the time. And of course, you know, my husband being my, being my rock through all of it uh, made it much more manageable than, than I had expected it to be. Firstly, how common is it to be diagnosed with breast cancer or cancer in general for um, pregnant mothers? So it's very rare. It's very unusual. I mean, the lifetime risk of breast cancer for the average woman is about 12%. One in eight women are expected to be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. But that definition means up until the age of 80. And so when you look at the chart of how that risk actually increases by age, it's 
still very minimal risk uh, at the ages of 20 to 40 um, plus when women might be in more childbearing years. Um, That risk generally increases much more in their 50s and 60s and um, onwards. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even for me having a mutation in my BRCA1 gene and knowing that my lifetime risk was over 80%, my risk of actually developing it in my early 30s like I did was still low single digit. Right. Okay. And so out of the one in eight women, um, how many of them have a history of breast cancer in their family and how many, you know, are diagnosed without any predisposition? The majority of breast cancers, and by that I think it's around over 80% or so of breast cancers, are considered sporadic, which means that they are not due to a genetic mutation. Um, they uh, can occur unexpectedly, you know, due to environmental factors, lifestyle factors, etc. So it it is a smaller percentage of overall breast cancers that are due to a genetic mutation. That said, for those that have a genetic mutation, having that information is incredibly powerful for each of those individuals, just like it was for me to be able to catch my cancer early and and, and treat it effectively. Also then benefited my own mother uh, down the road. For those that have a genetic mutation, the risk is incredibly high. For those that do not have a genetic mutation, their risk still exists. It is, it is not a non-zero risk. And there are still very important uh, lifestyle choices to make uh, to make sure to minimize uh, that risk as much as possible, whether it's in the the foods that they eat, the products that they use, and the self exams that they conduct, and the you know screening measures that they undergo at the right age. Right, and so your mom has the same genetic mutation of the BRCA1 gene, right? Yes, she does. What that means is not just that there's a heightened risk for breast cancer, which she of course already had 30 years ago, and and there's still a risk. Another one could come come as well. I, there's also for both her and me a heightened risk of ovarian cancer. Mm. And so instead of the average population having a one percent lifetime risk of ovarian cancer, we both have an over fifty percent chance of developing ovarian cancer. Over eighty five percent of ovarian cancers are detected in an advanced stage three or four, where they're much less treatable because they're so hard to detect. The screening methods that are currently available in terms of blood tests or ultrasounds are generally not being conducted for women. And even if they are, they're not necessarily fully effective in detecting an ovarian cancer early. Uh, she had her, t- you know, tubes and ovaries removed and we thought the surgery had went well and, you know, we had taken the necessary precaution. About a week later, we got the results of the biopsy that the doctors conduct on the organs that they removed and learned that there had actually already been cancer growing in her tubes. Um. Oh my goodness. And we had just miraculously caught it at stage one because we happened to have gone through this surgery, but that had we even waited, you know, three months until the end of the summer or so to conduct that surgery, it would have already been spread all over the bed. Oh my goodness. Do you feel like your drive to be an advocate is what led you to color? Yeah. So after having gone through my journey with cancer, I definitely felt a drive 
to professionally shift focus into something much more mission driven that I'm passionate about. I actually didn't know what that passion would be and how exactly I would be channeling that. Uh, But when I came across an article talking about color genomics and their mission at the time was to democratize access to genetic testing for hereditary cancers, that's when I felt like that was a mission that I could get behind and support and want to advocate because genetic testing and the results of it had played such an influential role in my own diagnosis and treatment. And yet in some ways, I was just lucky to have had an OBGYN who offered it to me. Um, Many people do not get access to genetic testing um, because currently, in order for them to be covered by insurance, uh, Uh, Insurance companies generally have uh, or require a pretty lengthy family history um, for you to qualify, a a lengthy family history of cancer, of known family cancer, uh, to qualify for genetic testing. And back when I was um, gone through testing in 2012, I was actually initially denied uh, by my insurance company, even though my own mom had had early onset breast cancer. Oh my goodness. I, I think the guidelines have since changed. And so that would not be the case today, but it is definitely a point of friction because people, you know, either don't necessarily have the family history of cancer or they just don't know what it is. Um, But studies also indicate that over 50% of people who have a mutation in the BRCA1 or 2 gene don't have a family history of cancer. Right. Um, And so what Color was looking to do is make this type of testing more readily available and at a price point that is more accessible, even if it's not going through insurance. And uh, the reality is that the cost of genetic sequencing itself has plummeted in the past decade. And so the cost of doing it is actually much more affordable. Um, But the, you know, list prices of the traditional labs and, you know, insurance company list prices have not necessarily declined. So, you know, a test that was having a $4,000 insurance list price uh, was costing about $250 um, through color. Wow. And so they send you like swab kits and you do it on your own? Yeah. So they are actually a physician ordered medically medical grade genetic test. Uh, so they are medically actionable in their results, but they have a more consumer centric uh, experience. So you could go to color.com and purchase a test, which would then be a box that is shipped to you, you spit in a tube and you send it back. And then you can track your sample online. And you know, you'll be notified by a genetic counselor when your results are ready, um, and have free access to those genetic counselors to discuss your questions and whatnot. Color in more recent times is more focused on population testing and working with health systems to bring genetic testing into more routine clinical care. But individuals are are still able to purchase the test from color.com if they so choose. Right, right. So what led you to launching Silver Linings? So over the past several years, after my diagnosis, I had been sharing my story pretty broadly uh, as something that I was just doing on the side. So during treatment, real time, I blogged my entire cancer journey in a blog that has now been read in 80 countries. Also shared my experiences at healthcare conferences in regards to the role of genetic testing and the importance of that information, as well as uh, on behalf of Stanford uh, Healthcare in films on survivorship and mindset and, uh, you know, the grand opening of the new Stanford hospital, etc. And 
what I realized is that I was incredibly passionate about inspiring others and helping them learn from my own experiences and not just the clinical experience of, of being a cancer you know warrior or a patient, but also the role that positivity and resilience and mindset played in my journey would be relevant to people regardless of the hardship that they're going through because hardships themselves are inevitable, yet the benefits of those type of personal skills are helpful, no matter whether it's a health challenge or otherwise. I, I felt inspired to focus full-time on turning what I had been doing on the side into more of my full-time focus, which is being an inspirational speaker and focusing on building this platform that allows me to help others learn from my experiences and focus on living their own you know, healthy and fulfilling and thankful life. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, tell us about your um, motherhood journey. So my motherhood journey has definitely evolved over the years. Uh, you know, I was 29 and working as a management consultant at Bain and Company when I had my first daughter. Um, so I had been working full time, theoretically went into part time um, after her delivery. But you know, part time management consultant is a full time job anywhere else <laughs> in terms a number of hours. Um, and then, you know, when I was pregnant with my second daughter, I was actually working at a startup. Um, I, and, you know, not necessarily the optimal time to join a startup, but uh, I had always make, made sure to work for organizations and teams that were very supportive of working parents and flexibility. You know, while my husband and I were both working um, office jobs full time, we had a full time nanny at home that was incredibly uh, important in terms of keeping us sane and our, yeah. our family um, working together. You know, now my daughters are five years old and eight years old. And I have realized that this is just a very special time of life when they are truly becoming their own individuals, developing their own personalities, but also still want to hang out with me. And, you know, the problems um, or the challenges that are involved with them are no longer as physically demanding as they were when they were, you know, babies, but now are more emotionally demanding in terms of how they were treated at school and what it is that they want to talk about. So for me, it became really important that I now be able to have a job that I really own my lifestyle with that gives me the flexibility to be as present with them as possible. And so I made a choice, which was not something I had ever expected to do, was to not be an employee uh, for a company and um, be a working mother in a way that I define my own terms, you know, running my own business with silver linings and having the flexibility to be able to pick them up from school, spend the afternoons with them, you know, at, at this age where I think it's so important, um, and yet also pursue my own passion, you know, in other times of the day. And, you know, they are just little bundles of joy that they also love dancing. It's really interesting because children can be so similar to you and yet so different from you at the same time. So I have <laughs> two daughters that both love dancing. One who just like me loves the stage, has a big bright smile on her face, you know, when she's performing. And yet I have another daughter who loves dancing and yet is terrified of the stage and <laughs> of an audience and people looking at her. Um, you know, and so... Uh, 
it, I think it's an amazing journey where you learn how to, you know, parent someone who's different from you. And yet you just do your best to instill in them the values you want them to learn. Um, and, you know, it's probably the hardest uh, role I've ever had in my life and probably ever will. Um, but obviously, uh, the most rewarding as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's, you know, a ritual that you do with your daughters, um, you know, and I think it's such a beautiful thing. You wrote an article about it, how you kind of give them these terms of affirmation to start their day with. So can you mm -hmm. tell us about how one of the things that I do is, you know, in some ways brainwashing, <laughs> but it's, it's really around repetition of affirmations. And, uh, you know, it started when they were really young, um, with the question of what do you do if you fall down and they know to respond with, I get back up. Um, but right. the, that the ritual of affirmations that we do is, um, a list of post-it notes that I have on their bathroom mirror that, uh, read, you know, I am loved. I love myself. I am resilient. I choose to be happy and I will work hard at what I love to do. And my daughters read those post-it notes to themselves every day before going to bed. And I will occasionally, you know, pop quiz them on what do the post-it <laughs> notes say. Uh, and, you know, they're able to you know, recite it from memory at a moment's notice. And what's amazing to see now is that my elder daughter, uh, Dia, who's now eight, has actually started adding her own post-it notes uh, to the mirror and um, most recently has added, I am kind and I am intelligent. Oh, that is so sweet. Do you find yourself worrying that they're going to have, you know, something like this to grapple with when they're older? Yeah, it's definitely on top of mind for both my husband and myself uh, that they have a 50% chance of carrying this gene mutation as well. The genetic testing is something that is not available to minors. And I personally am happy with that because I want them to go through testing, but at an age where they are emotionally equipped to understand what it means and actually able to start taking action on it. Mm. I actually would not want them to get tested at this young age because right now they're so young that they might not even know that they went through testing and only my husband and I would know. Mm -hmm. But when they're teenagers and you know more familiar with my public story and the risk the family might be at, and if they were to ask me, you know, well, am I at risk? Did I get the testing done? I don't want to lie to them. And yet I don't think at age 16 or whatnot, they might have the emotional maturity to know the results of those tests either. And so when they're in their 20s, I'm definitely going to be a proponent of them getting the testing done and, and starting screenings at an earlier age. Um, but in the meantime, I prefer to recognize that they very possibly are at heightened risk and therefore, um, you know, take the necessary precautions in terms of diet and uh, lifestyle, you know, now just assuming that that risk um, is there. And so, you know, I am much more anti-sugar uh, for my children than the the common <laughs> mom might be. Sure. Uh, and, you know, my, of course, my kids love candy and, and treats just like any child does. And yet at the same time, they're very familiar with it being unhealthy. And, you know, when they get, they're somewhat brainwashed now to know that if they get candy, like in their Valentine's 
Valentine's box at school or whatnot <laughs> that, um, you know, they'll bring it home and then just be excited to put the candy in the Halloween basket, which then <laughs> will last in the, in the basket until Halloween, at which point they will get to choose one candy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, of course I want them to enjoy their childhood. And so they, you know, eat birthday cakes and cupcakes and things like that at parties. But, um, you know, it, it I, I am definitely um, more stringent about that than others, um, you know, yeah. other dietary changes for them too. So for the listeners out there, um, I want to know how we can get involved, back the cause, donate, um, is Breast Cancer Society um, the, you know, the most prominent foundation that we should be backing? Um, are there smaller organizations that you um, feel are just as good to support? Yeah, there are numerous organizations through which someone could support um, breast cancer. I think it uh, first involves identifying what aspect of cancer or breast cancer you're you're wanting to support. And what I mean by that is, is it research oriented? Is it supporting research for breast cancer overall? Or is it re- supporting research for drug development or supporting research for, you know, specific subcancer types? Um, Or is it actually supporting patients that are undergoing treatment right now and, uh, you know, the resources that are then made available to them? And, uh, you know, there are organizations at both the national and local level. And I think once you identify what type of support it is that you want to provide, you know, checking uh, charitynavigator.org to see what the different organizations are that are available and which ones are reputed to be um, efficient with their spend, uh, meaning optimizing for most of that donation to actually go towards the purpose um, and not to overhead expenses um, is a sort of tactical uh, step someone could take to identify how to um, you know donate or support. Um, you know, my husband and I are partial to supporting the Stanford Women's Cancer Center through the Under One Umbrella organization um, because of you know our personal experiences with them, but there are obviously a number of other organizations to choose from as well. So when was a time when you trusted your mom's sense? I think uh, there was a time related to my first daughter, Tadia, um, when she was a young baby. That was probably the first major health uh, challenge that, um, you know, I had experienced uh, for my family in adulthood. And that was that when she was born, uh, she, her, her, you know, her, her skin and face uh, looked fine when she was born, but early on, I started noticing a redness uh, developing on her cheek. And it was um, this feeling that like, we need to get this checked out and better understand what this is. And the um, pediatrician had mentioned that it could be a a hemangioma, which Mm. is a birthmark that uh, is babies are not born with, but that in 10% of cases, which I actually thought was high, because I was so unfamiliar with it at the time, but have since noticed many babies to have it um, is uh, is like a benign blood tumor that develops over time in the newborn's early months um, but it actually grows very rapidly can grow to be very large and um, when it's on the face it can actually grow to disrupt um, you know the face in terms of like eyesight or nose or whatnot depending on how uh, big it is and while it does go away on its own it can take five to ten years 
for it to disappear mm. on its own and that there could be you know permanent damage to the skin um, depending on how large it gets and it's not just large as in surface area it's actually 3d um and and, and can bulge out and mm. uh, you know at, at that time it was still just a, a small flat red little circle um on that was developed like pinkish um circle developing on her skin but it was this feeling that like i want to explore options to see what we can do about this because even if it goes away on its own you know by the time she's five to ten and it starts going away there could already be impact to her self-esteem um by that point you know if, if we had only taken the pediatrician's advice on it then that would have been insufficient because we were given the advice that all that can be done to treat this at the time is either steroid injections or laser treatments um neither of which we were comfortable doing for our two-month-old and um it was through our own advocacy and pushing for again you know specialist opinion we found our way to a dermatologist at UCSF who had expertise in the area and was able to share with us a more progressive treatment at that time, which was using propanolol, which is actually a blood pressure medication that has been used in children and adults for decades. It's just a um, liquid medication that mm. had, had in recent years been found to have a sort of side effect benefit of quickly reducing um, the size of these hemangiomas before they uh, grow to be too big. And so, uh, you know, when my daughter was four months old, we were able to start her on this medication, um, which again was like a, just a liquid medication through a dropper. Um, you know, it did require me for until she was 14 months old, I did need to nurse her uh, throughout the night every three hours. Um, so even when I went back to work as a full-time consultant, you know, I was still waking up every three hours to feed her in the middle of the night because of the um, side possible side risk of um, low blood sugar. Mm. Uh, but that medication ended up being extremely effective in reducing the size of the hemangioma and um, minimizing the, you know, any sort of permanent impact uh, that would be left on her skin. And, you know, she's now eight years old and it's barely visible at all. But it was actually the experience of uh, doing the research on that new medication and coming across a YouTube video of a family who had actually used that medication on their own child and documented how the hemangioma had responded and how happy they were with the results. It was that experience that inspired me to want to also document my journey with cancer then years later mm. um, and share that with the world because I had experienced firsthand the benefit of experience sharing and how much comfort it had brought our family at a time of distress um, going through my daughter's case um, that I wanted to then be able to do the same in return for others. That's wonderful. Wow. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? Uh, so in in recent years, I would say that the quote that I think about a lot is uh, from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, when he said, only in the darkness can you see the stars. Wow. Because what that reflects for me is the reality that dark and light go hand in hand and the moments of darkness in our lifetime are inevitable. And it's more about our perspective of how we're going to 
face those hard times and the appreciation that we're going to have for the good times um, and maintaining that perspective that there are silver linings to our hardships. And, you know, sometimes we just have to be willing to see and recognize them. Yes. Yes. And I mean, it manifests in your work, your day to day, at your mission and who you are. Um, it's those beautiful silver linings that are shining. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. So, you know, is there a product that you're just loving right now and you want to share with everybody? So if I think about mom products, uh, even though this is tangential to what most of this talk has been about, but (laughs) if I think of a product that has made a very big difference in uh, my husband's and my parenting of our children (laughs) and and our own happiness, uh, I would actually say it's our color changing clock. Oh, cool. We got um, when when my elder daughter was very young, she was two years old. So if you're unfamiliar, um, you know, it's available on Amazon, but it's basically a clock that you can set the alarm to instead of making a sound, it actually changes the color of light um, that's emitted from the clock. And the reason this was important is because when our daughter would wake up at, say, four in the morning, she doesn't know if it's dark out because it's four in the morning or if it's dark out because it's 630 in the morning and still reasonable time to actually get up. And Mm -hmm. so by setting the color changing clock for her, she would just be able to look at the clock. If the green light was now shining, then she would know that it's an appropriate time to call out for us. And, uh, you know, we would come get her from the crib. And yet if the light was not shining, then that means that it's still nighttime, sleepy time, and she should just close her eyes and put herself back to sleep. That is the coolest thing ever. Oh my goodness. And I feel like every child would just love that, you know, and because it makes getting up in the morning fun when you see this, your favorite color show up. Absolutely. When we oh. first introduced it to her, you know, she would be like jumping with joy when she was like, <laughs> the green light's on, the green light's on. Uh, you know, and we had introduced that to her when she was two years old. She was still in her crib at the time. And that was really helpful because she basically became conditioned to know that you don't get out of bed unless the green light's on. And so when we then transitioned her into a big girl bed, we never actually had to worry about her you know, waking up in the middle of the night and coming to our room because she just knew, well, the green light's not on, so I'm not supposed to leave my bed, even though technically she now <laughs> has the physical freedom to do so. Yes. Um, and yeah. you know, my, my kids are now five and eight, and we still use the color changing clock uh, you know, for school wake up and, and weekend wake up because we you know change what the acceptable wake up time is <laughs> to, to a later time right. on the weekends. Um, so for any of the newer moms or um, out there who uh, you know haven't heard of that, uh, you know that could be something that's helpful for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. We'll link it in the show notes, um, and it's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Um, so my product is. Um, from a brand that I love and support and endorse. It's um, Gaiam. And they're, you know, the known kind of yoga brand. Um, and I actually love this um, this product, the Balance Disc. 
So I put it on my chair and I'm sitting on it right now. Um, and it kind of engages your core much like a BOSU um, while you're sitting. And it's great because I um, I feel like, you know, I don't have as much time as I'd like um, or do I clearly I don't make time to hit the gym as much as I'd like to. Um, but I know that while I'm at my desk or recording a podcast, um, I'm engaging my core and, um, you know, having good posture. And so, um, yeah, I love this balance disc and it's only 22 bucks. Um, you can get that on um Gaim's website and I do have a code um and it is momsense 20 all caps and you get 20% off your order where can my listeners find you sure so my website is parulsamani.com so p a r u l s o m a n i.com uh, they could also type in designingsilverlinings.com and it redirects to the website as well. And that uh, site holds more information about my mission, my story, and the work that I now do in terms of speaking engagements and whatnot. Um, and I'm also, of course, on Instagram and Twitter under the at PD Somani handles uh, and on Facebook under at Designing Silver Linings. Awesome. Barla, it has been a joy having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being an advocate, for being a voice, for helping those in need um, that may not even know they need it until they hear you. Um, thank you so much for helping us find those silver linings in our day-to-day. Thank you for having me. That's total mom sense.